Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have back Martin Lucas, Paul Alexandru and Alex Moscow. And we're going to be talking about the duality of business. Now, what does that mean? We'll come to that in a second. Martin, if you could give 30 seconds on who you are and who you serve. Sure. So I run a business called Gap in the Matrix. We use mathematical psychology, which is the number side of how people think. We spent four years studying how customers make decisions and how to optimize everything you do to give them more of what they want and less of what they don't. Core of what we do is consumer. We do a little bit in software, but most of our life is spent in the consumer industry. Excellent. Paul. I'm Paul Alexandru. I'm the founder of Modern Equivalent. I do a lot of work with high growth companies um, and Fortune 500s who are trying to behave like high growth companies. Um, disruption. And a lot of the work that I do is around uh, what I call creative leadership. So turning historically soft skills into sort of new capabilities and tools for boardrooms. Excellent. Alex? Hi, Marcus. I'm Alex Mosco. I'm the MD of 9mm PR and the Sales Sweet Spot. I've been in corporate communications and B2B public relations for 20 years, and I help the founders and owners of uh, uh, B2B businesses to tell their story so they can attract the right customers and the right employees. Typically, they are not presenting the most interesting stuff about their businesses to the world, and I help them mine the gold that really compels people to either buy or to join the company. Excellent. And I'm Marcus Kauke, and I'm a fitness instructor. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So let's start out with the, the key question. The telegraph has just popped up on my screen. Alex and I are screwed. It says that bald men are more likely to pick up COVID. So let's move on from that because that's just too depressing when I see Paul's he uh, head of hair. Um, <laughs> so the duality of business. What, what is the duality of business? Martin, let's, let's start with you. How do you see duality within the business? Here's what it should be, is that your culture should be something that flows inside and outside of your business, right? which I, I know that Paul will have a lot of insights about anyway. It should be how your sales and marketing has continuity between what marketing says to get people through the door and then what sales talk about. In a psychology sense, when they talk about the duality of life in general, it talks about for every happy, there's a sad, like there's always an opposite of things, right? So if you think about an individual is very much like a business or a business is very much like an individual in terms of we get the same chemical release for being in a, in a happy thinking pattern as we do for being in a negative thinking pattern. So this is why some people can just be perfectly content in life by thinking negative things and having a very critical mindset and the same is true for business right you can get away with it in life a little bit you'll probably have less friends but if you do it in business it's not so good and it affects culture marketing sales all of that stuff so the duality thing's very real uh, it's just a question of the lens of how people see the world and, and thus how they project themselves be it an individual or business so paul let, let's kick off with you uh, talking about culture so how do you see the duality of culture within businesses affecting their performance? The best companies are where there is a this sort of single unifying purpose that informs how a business behaves externally and how it informs internally. And not just in terms of the product design and being sort of customer first in, in what it actually delivers, but also how it treats its people. And I think that today, obviously, 
we're living in a far more transparent world than we did 50 years ago. You know, there's Glassdoor, there's all sorts of platforms for getting the truth of the internal machinations that? out. <laughs> well, that, that's sort of my, my, uh, my, uh, my understanding. And so I think that the, the, we're going to probably talk about it, no doubt, a bit, a bit later in this session. But, you know, the ability, I think, for an external narrative to inform an internal narrative and vice versa, I think is becoming more and more of a, a corporate imperative rather than sort of separating the two. On that note, let me bring Alex in because I know this is your bag. And in particular, I'd like to focus on the question of the external story to attract the right kind of people as well as the right kind of customers into your business. Great question. And, and I kind of, I'm in real agreement with both Paul and Martin and a lot of what they said. For me, duality is all about what a business says and how it operates, right? So how it makes what it's saying real in the world. And no matter who you are, what you do, what you sell, you're never selling to a company. Um, you're always selling to people, right? So the important parts of the narrative are kind of, if you're the leader of the company, it's your narrative, who you are, what you've done, where, where you've been, the, the values that drive you. And that that then builds into culture. And, and that's the message that goes through the business. And then those values need to be communicated externally because when people are buying from a business or from looking for a partner they are obviously looking for somebody that they believe can do the job and can do the job well who has the experience to do that job and and can get the results that they're looking for but they're looking for a synchronicity and values as well they're looking for people that they feel they like that they can get on with and who come from a very similar place so for me those the the narrative that a company tells has got to got to be about its people and, and trying to create that synchronicity with the market that it's trying to attract. Does that make sense? It does. I'm going to challenge it. I agree that people buy for their reasons, not your reasons, the salesperson's sure. reasons, or the marketeer's reasons. And that rule states people buy, and I absolutely agree with that. That said, in my experience, because I'm a slightly curmudgeonly type, People don't necessarily have to like me, but they do have to trust me first. They have to, well, they have to trust that I know my stuff and that I have their best interests at heart. And by understanding what they want and what they need, that's the mission. The purpose is how we go about helping them to solve their problem. And I think when you ask salespeople and marketeers what their mission and purpose is, it's always me, 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 me. Um, and that's a huge mistake. So, Martin, I'd like to bring you in at this point. What does the research tell us about the lack of understanding? And I'm waiting for a bit of a barrage here that companies and salespeople and marketeers have about the real reason why people buy the real reasons. Uh, a barrage. I'm tempted to do a barrage. I'll try. I'll try and be a little bit more considered. Right? No, so, no, no. no. <laughs> Just give it both barrels and don't hold back. Right. Humans don't understand humans. That's what it comes down to, right? So if humans don't understand humans, like if I can't have a a conversation with my wife and actually understand the emotional meaning and the actual meaning that she means, then what's the likelihood of me being able to go into work and understand a mass of customers or a mass of salespeople serving those customers? It's not really a sales and marketing issue in itself. It's just a general context about how humanity understands itself, right? So I think the gap for me is that nobody takes the time 
because they find it too scary or they don't understand the benefits of it to think, literally, to think as sales and marketing about how they serve different audiences. And you'll get a lot of, a lot of defensive reactions for anyone listening to what I just said because the marketeers will say, well, we've got personas and things like that. And the problem that I find with personas consistently is that they describe an individual. It'll be like, I looked at one this week with a new client we had and it was like, Dave is 19 and he's a backpacker in Canada. And I'm like, okay, well, you're just describing Dave. <laughs> That's not a market. And I find that consistently with personas. And from the sales thing, it's kind of the same, same, but different. You try and encourage salespeople to think differently about every customer they're in front of, but of course they automate what they say. So the vast majority of salespeople, I've trained over 5,000 of them, just go into that kind of automatic repetition. So in neither case are we actually pausing to say, what's the context for the people that we're trying to serve? How do they feel about something? And feelings is obviously quite a scary thing for people to deal with. And that's where I see the loop. That's the problem. That's really interesting about context. So, Paul, I know this is something that you're very keen to discuss as well. And so let's talk about how you get to understand the context in which your customer exists and that they're experiencing so that you can get the right story, the right message to them in a way that's meaningful to them. Yeah, it's funny, actually. I was, I was doing some training with an internal customer care team for Big Automotive this week. And you would assume that, that they are frontline. They deal with the good and the bad, mostly the bad. Even they admitted that there is so much about the customer journey that they don't, that they weren't aware of. You know, they were aware of the little pieces that they dealt with and solved, but they'd never sort of taken a step back and looked at the, the entire customer experience. And I think that that's true of most organizations is that. Um, you know, we, especially the, the, the larger the organization, you know, the more easy it is for us to get lost in our, in our piece of that machine. Um, you know, when we perfect that sort of cog that is ours, but we often lose context for what's coming in and where it's going. And I see that a complete shift when it comes to sort of younger or early stage companies a lot of them tech, but not necessarily, where you tend to get the whole business, all of the talent more invested in the whole journey. Um, now, I realize that there are some impracticalities to educating sort of 10, 20,000 people, organizations on that. But it definitely creates, I think, a, a higher fidelity of solution at each of those different points that someone might be solving. So when I understand context, when I understand the broader journey or the broader experience that someone might be having with us, I'm better equipped to answer or address or solve for what is directly in front of me, you know, so um, rather than sort of solving in a vacuum. Interesting. So, Alex, talk to me about how um, the story is developed in the onboarding process. So how, how the story is developed in a new hire's mind and what are your suggestions in terms of making sure that a new hire, whichever department they're in, but particularly for sales and marketing, obviously because of our, our natural audience, how they need to be engaged throughout that customer journey and so that they understand the impact that they have on the experience the customer has 
at every stage? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. It's a really big question, isn't it? So that's why I gave it to you. Yes, yes. How should they be onboarded? Well, I guess the way that the business operates anyway, so the culture of the company is going to be at the forefront of that onboarding process. So they, the onboarding process has got to kind of consume the person in the culture so that the way that they are onboarded will reflect that the way that they need to then treat their uh, customer, whether that's internal people or external people. So companies that uh, do it very well, that we work with, they spend a lot of time with the, the, the person that's being onboarded uh, training. There's a lot of training up front, training them in how they need to act in the story of the company. We do a lot of tech work, so in the technologies that they use and why they use them. But also there's kind of, they, they get them involved in the team very, very quickly. And it's kind of like an osmosis type of thing, right? So they are learning day to day from the people around them. They see how they're acting and they understand exactly what they're supposed to be doing. So I think it's very much, it's a trickle down effect. It starts at the top, it works its way through the business. And then it's about giving that person access to different people within that business so that they feel like they are part of the team, that they're making a meaningful contribution. And that when they go out to the market, that they reflect exactly how the business wants them to act. Again, this is really interesting, certainly from the conversations I've been having with sales leaders of the fastest growing tech companies on the planet that are actually succeeding and not falling off the cliff. That whole process of pre-onboarding onboarding, training, ongoing coaching, uh, accountability, engagement throughout the business seems to be a red thread that runs through all of them. And one of the things that the best sales leaders that I'm interviewing are saying is that it's definitely not about the product. It's all about the customer. And spending time really trying to gain insight into what it's like being the customer experiencing the kind of problems that they have. And I think there is an argument here for an onboarding process that involves engagement in the various different departments that touch the customer. And when we've done this in my hotel clients, where sales gets involved right at the beginning with marketing, with the inbound, the outbound side, they get involved in front desk, they get involved in housekeeping, they get involved in food and beverage. That's really worked extremely well. And I suspect this then plays to David Epstein's theory, which is that in a creative environment, people with a broad range of experience perform better in a specialist uh, niche where creativity is required because they can draw on that wealth of experience and they can join the dots in ways that are just a specialist in food and beverage or uh, in front desk can't do. So Martin, I'd like to bring you back in on this. Given the kind of work that you do at Gap in the Matrix and the, all the different data points that you're looking at in order to understand what causes customers to want to buy or causes a brand to put off loyal customers from buying from them. What are your uh, findings 
telling you about uh, the importance of range with respect to employees? I think that there's a there's a skills match that people miss quite a lot. Like if you really understand the different types of customers you're serving, right? The the way that all humans make decisions, part of our decision making is archetypes, right? So really simply, your your archetype doesn't change based on emotion, mood, work, life. It's just inside you all the time, right? And it's can, just, I, can I just stop you there? Can you define what an archetype is for the audience? Yeah, so an archetype is the the Carl Jung stuff. So that's that's he's basically created the archetypes, and it means, for example, I'm an individualist, which means that you need to show me what to do. If you ever give me the sign that you tell me what to do, I'm much more likely to push away from what you're offering me. Uh, full stop. Right. So there's a natural correlation that if you understand different industries that you're serving and different markets that you're serving, you're going to get a more dominant archetype in those markets. And therefore, if you have salespeople that have that dominant archetype, then put them together and you're going to find more success in a very natural way. Okay, so back to the original question then. In terms of creating that exposure and that range uh, when you're hiring, when you're onboarding, when, when you're actually in the job using teams for selling, how can we leverage that to the best of our ability in order to serve the customer better? I think it's just part, it should be part of the onboarding process. It should be part of the training. It should be part of the recruitment. Because if you understand that, for example, if you were serving a selling software to HR, the vast majority of your archetypes are going to be planners. So you're going to want detail-oriented salespeople, which is quite rare in itself, right? Because most salespeople are not necessarily detail-oriented. So that's a dominant archetype for HR. Quite a simple correlation, right? Because your ability to spot detail-oriented people, you don't have to go through loads of tests. It's just emotional intelligence. It's just your ability to read people during an interview thing. So would 100% of people in HR be planners? Absolutely not. Is the majority? Yes. So you can just play the odds like that. And that's the type of thing that can get you really systemic growth. And it's incredibly simple. Can I jump in on this, Marcus? Is that Please. right? So what I was going to say was, this doesn't happen to my knowledge, but it probably should happen, right? So typically, and I think you'd attest to this, that salespeople a lot of the time aren't asking the right questions of their customers. And a lot of the time, they're not, probably not asking any questions at all. They're kind of on, on transmit, right? What would work well would be kind of a process of taking new recruits into clients with somebody who's, who's, who knows the client very well and asking them good questions about themselves, what they want, what their job's like, what they do, what gets in the way of the stuff they want. So they can really understand the context that the customer is in and the the tick boxes, if you like, that they are making purchases on, uh, because as we know, people are motivated personally, not to, you know commercially. They obviously they're in a business, they've got objectives, they want to achieve those objectives because it's all about forward momentum in their careers and out looking good. But it's it's very much wrapped up in the personal. What is it that they want from their job? What's their vision for their role? These are kind of questions that we ask a lot in when we're doing case studies because it all speaks to motivation and it's the motivation you know you you spoke before about people making purchases for their reasons and those reasons are all wrapped up in their own personal motivation so it would make sense that if you are a new recruit and you're being onboarded to take those people into clients friendly clients where you can have those kind of conversations and really understand the context into which you're selling so you can ask good questions get the information you need and then present your company in a way that makes sense to the buyer 
I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, there are two skills, fundamental skills, that I believe salespeople are either not taught or poorly taught. The one that they're not taught is how to listen. Listening is something that I think should be taught at school, and it's a whole body experience. It's not something that you just hear the words. It's how they're clothed. It's the intent, the motive, the cause, the intent behind them. And very few salespeople are good listeners. Do you know the average salesperson can only bear the silence for 0.6 of a second before they feel the urge to fill the void with the sound of their own voice? And the second is the quality of questioning. Your average salesperson, who bluntly, I, I don't blame them. I hold the managers responsible. But in turn, I don't believe managers are given the kind of training that they need because the normal way a manager discovers that they're a manager is they get tapped on the shoulder and told, Paul, congratulations, you're a manager now. And there's no mm -hmm. runway. And questioning the average salesperson ask questions to gather information. Now, if you're doing housekeeping information gathering when you're talking to the C-suite, you have about a two-minute lifespan. Then the better salespeople, who bluntly are also crap, will ask questions to gain understanding. The best salespeople will ask questions that deliver insight. What I find is that the best salespeople that I'm training are the ones who ask questions and the prospect is slightly winded when you ask uh, when they ask uh, questions they think shit i've never thought of it that way i've never seen my business in that context before i didn't realize that that was happening and that's the power of those questions because great salespeople are leaders they help the customer move from x to y and they move the customer's understanding of their own context, their own business, their own customer base forward. So, Paul, I know this is very much your domain in terms of getting that the narrative, but also what sort of work are you doing with your customers, helping them to develop the right kind of questions? I think that's really beautifully articulated. I mean, I often say that listening is a creative act. But I think breaking it down into those two aspects, the ability to listen, the propensity to listen, and also the quality of the questions, I think it's um, a really useful. I, I guess that there is, we're, we're talking broadly about the value of developing more of a customer-first culture. And I think that what you're talking about and, and a lot of the work that you focus on, Marcus, it's, it's specifically as it relates to sort of sales excellence and performance. I think a lot of what you talk about, though, I see it mirrored in other parts of organizations. You know, and I think a lot of the insights that you bring to the table actually brought across into sort of senior leadership and what I'm seeing, say, in terms of internal culture and how to move that forward. Basically, there's two things when it comes to how do you build customer insights that I see there's firsthand experience and building a, a culture and a capacity to seek that out. And then there is tools and artifacts that help try and codify those insights to make them a bit more shareable. And with regards to the first, I just want to share with you, there's a couple of quite remarkable C-suites who I came in contact with. One is in a Fortune 500, the other is in a startup out of Norway. 
um, but very experienced. One's a CMO, one's a COO. And they both said to me when they started, this is separately, they don't know each other, but they, one of them said that in the first three months, her aim was to personally get on a call with 100 customers and speak to them for between 30 minutes and 45 minutes with the intention of developing a deeper ongoing relationship with 25 or 30 of them. Now, yes, she was speaking to her own team and the people, but what it says to me is there is a new generation of leaders, very, very senior, who don't see sort of corporate hierarchy or seniority as a barrier to that direct customer insight. I'd love to see more businesses encourage all levels of their operation to actually speak to real customers, to not just look at personas, to not just sort of try and study the artifacts intellectually or study the data points, understand the theory. I think if you really want to develop a customer-first culture and start to establish empathy as a capability, then I think the only way to do that is to facilitate one-to-one engagements like Alex was saying. Um, I, I think it's really, it's, but, and they're quite transformational. You see the light bulb sort of switch on after you facilitate that kind of engagement you know, where, say, someone in a call center team or a marketing team, you know, after they speak to a real customer, they come away from it. They're like, wow, you know, I, I get it now. You know, I understand why we always used to say X, Y, and Z, but from their perspective, it means this. You know, and I know that there is, you know, we're sort of in the, in the customer age now where every business has a CX strategy, every business has a set of personas. But I think that one of the things companies still fail to do is to get their people sitting alongside real customers. That's my little rant for the session well, anyway. I think there's some real value in this. Speaking to Tom Shodorf, uh, Tom took Splunk from 42 million to 1.5 billion in five years. And wow. a regular activity in his sales operating rhythm was customer calls. Mm-hmm. And if I look at J.D. Delosier at 8x8, a condition of him taking the job was that the CEO would go on the road with him for a month and he would be in on every call, every meeting with the partners. Because I think, obviously, I have a, um, a particular stick around the channel. And you know, happy partners mean happy customers. In fact, they are. They're often your best customers. And without having done that, it makes it really difficult to create that integration and alignment with mm. the channel because now what you're dealing with are a bunch of third parties who are in business for their reasons not your reasons they don't just wake up and think all oh, eight by eight or splunk or whatever your product is your company is they have a range of vendors and your customers are the same by the time the salesperson picks up the phone to speak to them they've already made 147 decisions yeah and it's only 803 And if you don't have that deep understanding, deep connection with your customer base, then chances are you're going to miss massive opportunities. But also, you're probably going to send a message that jars with many of them. So, Marty, let's bring you back in on this as well. How often do you see senior executives who are divorced from the customer issuing directives and direction 
that is woeful and as a result is costing the business nothing less than a small fortune. For the purposes of my ability for my business to survive, let's eliminate the word woeful and my response would be 100%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if we added the word woeful, I would say a, a pretty significant percentage. The thing that Paul explained, right, is so impactful, so powerful, but why doesn't it get done? Why are people not speaking to customers? Because as soon as you hit middle manager level and above, people don't speak to customers. They're all operating based on a theory, right? And it's one of the, as somebody that is a big fan of money, making money and spending money and shopping, <laughs> I am in the middle of a capitalist world, right? So I'm not, I'm not criticizing capitalism at all. But for every ideology, and any ism is an ideology, right? When it comes to capitalism, you're always going to get negative throwaway from it, right? And one of the negative side effects of capitalism is a blame society. Because if, if you think about what KPIs do, they constantly drive people to a number, to practical performance, right? And if you do that, it means that you're stepping further and further away from emotional context, away from understanding people, and above anything else, away from being wrong. So most executives are playing a furious game of getting their weekly reports in and all this kind of control stuff and lots of visual reports these days using big data, which I know is a waste of time, but it allows everybody to sit in a room and say, look how amazing I am, look how amazing I am, look how amazing I am. The business is great. Nothing is wrong, right? Because nobody wants to put up their hands and say that anything is going wrong or anything needs fixed. And, but here's my key point about it. Humans make mistakes. Right. So every business is running with tens of thousands of faults in it, tens of thousands of things that could be improved. And it's not a criticism of those humans. It's not a criticism of, cr criticism of those departments in itself. But what you've got is a blame society or people trying to avoid blame. So what Paul said is incredibly important. That's why people don't do it, is that everyone's looking to defend themselves. And if you defend yourselves, you think you've already got the answers. You condition yourself to think you've, or you've always got the answers. And then you create this false economy where everything that you're doing is because of the customer and yet nobody's speaking to them. So we're still <laughs> caught in that world of looking at based on service, you know? Come on, Paul. I think that's a really interesting observation. You know, I look at sort of old businesses would love to map out answers for everything. I mean, if you look at sort of strategy decks, we have I mean, typically you know, drive efficiencies at an operational level. And you're seeing a lot of new businesses trying to build value in the top line. And I think old businesses, when you, you get used to sort of mapping out the answers for everything, the problem in the modern age is that the world is changing quicker than it ever has historically. And old answers break very quickly. So unless you're building kind of a culture of curiosity or a learning mindset within the business, a business that sort of accepts, you know, accepts failure, accepts loss, tries to design ego out of their internal culture. Unless you have these things, I think you're going to make yourself susceptible to some of the challenges that you're talking about, you know, which is that blame culture. Leaders want to protect themselves by being right all the time or by having the answers that their team doesn't have rather than simply knowing what questions their team should be asking or ask of their team. So on that note, one of the things that I've observed with fantastic leaders is, first of all, they let you fail and they don't punish you for it. They punish you for hiding it, but they're perfectly willing to let you fail. 
what they won't let happen is the business to fail when you're going down the wrong path. So they'll intervene only at that point. Next thing, the best of them focus on customer satisfaction and customer utilization of their products. So I was interviewing Colin Ferguson at OutSystems, and the culture that they've created there is quite special. Everybody is focused on the customer experience and making sure that customers are happy. They're talking to the customer. Everybody is fully engaged. Chris Dudridge at UiPath, again, if they have a policy which they've lifted from Microsoft T-36, Microsoft's strategy there is 36 months from the day that you start working with a customer, you have a process mapped out to maximize utilization of the product, to make sure that you're going deep and wide. And the thing that we see in the best future managers is their ability to sell the entire portfolio within their accounts. Interestingly enough, historically, what we've seen is top performers get promoted into management positions. But top producers are rarely wired well to be great managers, which is why very often you end up with this broken blame adversarial kind of uh, culture. But the salespeople who have the highest level of account penetration, I think it was Tom Castley uh, said this, are the ones that they pinpoint or earmark for management roles because they listen, they pay attention, they're more aware, they have higher EQ. And those are the qualities that you're looking for when you want managers, because a manager's job is not to uh, hit the number. The manager's job is to help the team hit the number. And very often they're focused on, as Marty was saying, is that they're focused on these metrics and the KPIs and all this kind of stuff. As a result of that, they're looking at the wrong end of the problem. They're typically looking at lag indicators rather than leading indicators. They're looking at the stuff that audit cares about rather than the customer cares about. And we forget very often that we are in business because of the customer, not in spite of them. They're not an inconvenience, you know, that we're there to serve them. So Alex, let's bring you in on this as well. So in terms of that whole alignment piece around service, I'd like to explore that in a bit more depth because I don't think there are enough businesses out there that really truly understand what service is. And just to clarify, that doesn't mean servitude. And I think it's really important that that story coming from the chief executive is all about how we serve our customers. So can I bring you in on that? You can. I, I think, first of all, I want to start at a different level, actually, and talk a little bit about what you were, what you were saying just before. And a client of mine works in key account management and typically works with very large corporates who are, who are serving a very large portfolio of accounts. And he says that the main issue they have is that their account management plans, so they're kind of their service plans with the customer, whether they're onboarding new or they're kind of existing customers. And actually, it's, it's kind of worse with existing customers, is that that plan is only three months maybe sometimes six months, but mainly only three months long. So, right, so they kind of onboard the customer. They understand the importance of that. They get them using the thing. And then they kind of, they look at any problems they might have and uh, might be happening and they troubleshoot those. But then customer contact kind of stops after that. There's no contact plan beyond that. 
And what typically happens is it comes to renewal time and uh, the customer turns around and says, oh, you know, we've really enjoyed the time with you, but we're already signing with somebody else. So there's this almost belief that the person, the customer is just going to sign up again because they've been using the stuff and six months ago or even nine months ago, they were enjoying it, but they're already moving off elsewhere because somebody else has been able to serve them far better because they've been asking good questions. They've been finding out what they really need. And he told me this really interesting story where he's working with one of a very, very large research company who offer a kind of insight, market insight that you couldn't get anywhere else. But they were really struggling to broaden the portfolio of services they were selling to their customers. And they couldn't understand why. So they bring my client in and they're like, you know, we've got all this stuff that we can be giving people. And whenever we, we kind of get good meetings, we have good conversations, but nobody's buying. We don't understand why. So he, what he did was what we talked about is he went and spoke to the customers and he went to find out what, what was going on in their lives, what their context was like, what they're struggling with, what the information they actually need was. And he went back and he said, right, this is what I found out. This is the stuff that you've got in-house. You've got it. It's plentiful. It's incredible insight. You've got it there. We'll package it up. And he put six figures on their bottom line within six months because everybody wanted it. And the big question was, why haven't you given this to us before? Why have we never seen this stuff, right? Because <laughs> you never asked us the right questions, right? I think, and, and that kind of comes back to what you were saying before, right? And I, I love what Martin said, right? That a lot of companies, and I can't say how many, but they operate on theory, right? So like, what are features and benefits? They're assumptions. You look, kind of look at what you've got and you say, hmm, Let's have a think. The market, this is what we've got. That's the market. That's what I think the market's going to want. So let's put those of our features. Let's put those of our benefits. And of course, you're making, what you're doing is you're asking the customer to try and work out what it is you can do for them rather than you presenting what you can do. And, and I loved what you said, Marcus, about context, right? The people, they're working day to day. And they're kind of they're kind of in the shit a lot of the time, right? We're always firefighting. We're always trying. We're always in a bit of a struggle, no matter what job we do. So if you're sat opposite a, a potential provider, and they're able to help you understand the context better, I mean, this is a massive thing. You kind of spoke about it before, and it was kind of a, a little bit throwaway, but it's so important, right? And it's a I can't remember the actual thing that you say. The wording of it, you'll tell me. But this idea of us salespeople being psychiatrists, yeah, and selling is a Broadway play played by a psychiatrist. Right, perfect. Right, because what? What? Do we, why do people enjoy their time with a psychiatrist? Because a psychiatrist asks very good questions that helps us come to an awareness of where we're at and what's going on in our lives, the problems we're facing. And by doing so, by helping us come to that awareness, we're bonded to that person because we believe they have the understanding, the insight to help us overcome them, right? And we like them because they're also giving us that knowledge that we're helping us broaden our awareness of our problems so that we can solve it ourselves. And I think that's the missing piece of the puzzle. I think that's what a lot of salespeople don't understand is what their role is in the sale. They're not there to sell. They're there to understand what the company needs and then give them that thing. So I know that doesn't quite answer your question, but I, kind of, there's been a lot of conversation going on and I just felt like there was a, I, I wanted to respond to a lot of what had been said. I think there are a couple of really important points to draw from this as well. One conclusion that I'm 
beginning to reach in my dotage is that people are fooled into thinking that familiarity breeds contempt and they don't want to be a pest. They don't want to be a burden on their customer. You're anything but a burden on your customer. One of the things that I teach my clients to do is have regular reviews with their customers. So at least once a quarter, physically meet up and be held to account. Turn up and have them take you to the woodshed for a quick beating and make sure that you're communicating and giving them criteria against which they will hold you to account, for which you are 100% responsible and in control. And in between times, have regular conversations. So there's a wonderful tactic uh, that we use, which is a framework called Recon. Remember, evaluate, changed opportunities, next steps. Remind me what we agreed between now and the last time we spoke. Remind me what you wanted me to do. Evaluate is where you invite negative feedback. So, Paul, tell me, is there anything that I have failed to do, any promise I've failed to keep, any expectation we as a business have failed to meet? And encourage that, because the next time I go back, they will remind me of that in the R stage of recon. Changed is what has improved, what's got better, what have we delivered, what surprised you that you're happy with. O stands for opportunities. And where are the opportunities for us to serve you more effectively over the next 30, 60, 90 days, 12 months, three years? And next steps is always making sure that you have forward momentum. So what actions do you need to take? What actions do I need to take? When are we going to kick off on the next project or on the next phase? And it's really important that not only are your senior executives talking to your customers, but you're getting the people who are operationally involved speaking to your customers. And you have to equip them with quality questions and help them bring that information back. When you have an engineer on site, make sure that they're equipped with those questions and then they feed it back into sales and marketing. Another aspect that I see the fastest growing companies being really successful at is that they speak to their customers on a regular basis and they get the customers to tell them what they need and what they want and where they're going. Now, this then speaks to another problem, which I see happen a lot, which is where they compromise on who their ideal customer is because of lack of pipeline. There is a pressure on many sales organizations to fill the, their diaries with meetings. And it's uh, yeah, the measures are things like first meetings, styles, proposals, demos, which are looking at exactly the wrong end of the problem. Because what that does is it creates busy activity instead of meaningful action that advances the relationship and serves the customer better. So, Marty, let's bring you back in on this. In terms of the mathematics around understanding how customers evolve once you've sold them something, how do you identify what next, what next, what next to keep that dialogue going so that you're serving them consistently well? And as a result, you're keeping out the competition. The best tip that I would want to give out to people is that it's, you'll get more upside from looking at what the customer is not doing than you will at what the customer is doing. And here's what I mean is most businesses are set up both from an, an upsell, resell and service point of view 
that they only behave when the customer actions something or when the customer is coming to the end of the contract, right? That's generally the causation of what you've got going on. Whereas if you look at any SaaS product, one of the biggest things that I've done, and I don't do as much work in, in SaaS because I prefer doing the consumer stuff, right? So I'll just give away a little secret to do with SaaS, is that it's as much about what people don't do as your end users, as your customers, as people using your reports, as, as what they do do. And most of the data is not set up to accommodate for that. So, for example, if you had a mean average that your normal end user um, would do six things a day to do with your product Monday to Friday, and they suddenly drop off and they're doing zero things a day for six days, right? You've got a strong indicator that they're either on holiday or they've stepped out of their mean. And at the moment, most businesses don't have a trigger to change based on that kind of behavior, and they should do, because it's not just about what people do. And we're setting ourselves up to fail because if you just do it based on what people are doing, then you're basically just trying to only serve your best customers, which are likely to rebuy and repeat anyway. So it's just about how you model data to understand and take into account human behavior, which is literally that model that I just gave you. But I didn't speak about human behavior until the end because it's not about confusing people about that. Data is just nothing more than an indicator of what people need and what they don't need. Is that why you call Gap in the Matrix? Yeah, I see the world as a matrix of behaviors and the gaps are both positives and negatives. It's not just doing stuff for the sake of it. I'm not, uh, even though we do a lot with data, right? We don't do much with big data because clients give us big data projects, right? But I, I then generally, we take about 75% of their data and throw it away because it's a waste of time. It's not relevant to actually understanding the customer. That's the biggest flaw with big data activity. There are a lot of tech people out there that are going to be quaking in their boots at the idea that they're uh, redundant. Well, this again speaks to another really important point. When you are listening, you're listening for what's not being said very often. And it, it, too often, salespeople are just listening for the triggers that they're hoping for. So, Paul, let's bring you back in on this. When you're working with your C-suites, what are you teaching them to observe? And what are the, the elements of listening that are really critical that run through all of the top performers that you work with? One of the things, the key things that Alex touched on is to design assumption out of the decision-making process. It's okay to have a hypothesis, but validate the hypothesis. And, you know, I think that assumption is just, in this day and age, it's just dumb business. You know, it just doesn't make sense. It's prone to risk. It's prone to subjectivity. It's just everything bad about, about a healthy business. And that really, I think, to design assumption out of any environment, you need to design in propensity to learn. You know, you need to design in that appetite for knowledge, that appetite to evolve, that appetite to, you know, not be a set and forget business, but to be a high touch business. You know, one that actually, um, I can't remember whether it was Alex or Martin was talking about customers at the end of, say, a membership cycle. Don't just sort of get them on board and forget about them. You know, lifetime value is incredibly precious and customer value grows over time. But we sort of forget about that. We're fixated by these big shiny marbles. So I think businesses, and leadership teams that start to value longevity and deep, deeper growth 
rather than just short-termist sort of growth. The other thing I just want to say about, about what we tend to talk a lot about when it comes to a tool for gaining customer insight, you know, I mentioned the two ways of build the tools and the artifacts and the other is just talk to people like one-to-one. A really effective method is extreme user interviews or extreme customer interviews. So rather than you don't need to speak to 100 people, you just need to speak to your extremes, you know, either side of the bell curve, your diehard fans and your rejectors and lapsed customers because they're the ones, you know, I say the extreme users are the juiciest. You know, they always give you the cleanest insights. The rejectors know exactly why they've rejected you and the diehard fans typically know exactly what they love about you. What you want to avoid is all of the customers in the middle who think you're kind of okay, you know, because it's really hard to get a clean insight out of them. So if you're really short on time, I would say go through your lapsed customer register, look at who's moved on to another product and start there. Ask them why they left. You know, don't just speak to your existing customers. Don't just ask them what makes them happy. And if you are speaking to an existing customer, speak to your diehard fans because they're the ones that are going to be really clear about what it is that they love about you. So that's sort of like, I guess, a bit of a hack for any sort of time poor leaders or people who want to generate some rich, clean insights. That's really interesting. So, Alex, let's talk to you about the work that you've done with your clients in terms of talking to the extremes. What are the insights, the kind of insights that you've been able to elicit as a result of having spoken to the LAPS customers and to the diehard fans? What we're always testing for is motivation, right? So what is it that kind of motivates them? What what is it that they need in order to be able to do their job? And what is it they want? I I kind of remember, we've done some really interesting work recently around email campaigning, right? So kind of cold approaches. And so we were approached by this one company, they're a startup, they're doing some really interesting stuff in sustainability. They're they're going to be running an e-bike initiative in London. And it's going to be a free initiative. So at point of use, you don't pay, but they want to bring on some corporates to branding corporates to to kind of run advertising through the app right and we had a look at it so they're kind of selling it as a marketing platform nobody's buying nobody wants it. And, I'm, and i had a look at it and i guess you know there's there's not a huge number of bikes so it's not a, a massive opportunity for brands to reach customers but also it kind of occurred to me that most brands when they'll look at this that they they every day they'll be somebody will be pursuing them trying to sell them some sort of marketing platform, some sort of way to get to new customers, all that kind of stuff. And so they hear it day in, day out. They're just not interested. And so we did some research. And, you know, as a PR person, we understand that, you know, when when it comes to brand, you've kind of got to connect with the current zeitgeist. And we know that marketing people and brand people, they are... There's a, there's a lot of ego in there, but we also know that they're, you know, their job is to make their brand look as good as possible. And they want to attach to what's going on in the world in order to do that. And I mean, you know, we've seen that very recently in the past couple of days with the Black Lives Matter and, and kind of the very positive kind of outpouring of emotion and also a lot of people standing up for, but brands getting involved in the conversation. And so understanding all of that. What we did was we, we, we looked at their, what they've got and we realised that actually when you consider what we're going through today, 
and what's going on with COVID and what's going on with lockdown and trying to find an exit plan. What we realise when you think about e-bikes, the idea is actually this is a way of getting London moving. It's a way of getting people moving safely. It's a way of looking after the environment. It's something, when you think about bikes, it's something that Boris is very passionate about. And so we re-engineered the email to talk about this is an initiative and this is an opportunity to get involved in something that's going to get the country moving. It's going to get London moving. It's going to get it moving safely, Help, going to keep people healthy. It's going to do wonders for the environment. And we knew, for, and from my understanding of people like me and from conversations that I'd had with marketing directors and brand people, I understood this motivation to get involved in the zeitgeist. Well, I've just, I had an email from, from the lady this morning. And we've only been doing this email. And remember, this is cold, right? So the last couple of weeks, these are the kind of results, right? So from nothing. They were struggling to get anything at all. Last couple of weeks, they've got meetings with And she's just written, and right? Because what Very you're doing is you're not saying, this is what I think you want, take it. You're saying, what, what is it that you need to do? And how can I, because, you know, every, every business is multidimensional. There's a number of ways in which you can present the business. And I think this talks to what everybody's been talking about this morning, is understand the lens through which your customer sees the world and then pitch them via that lens. Give them something that they want, that they understand, and that they can actually use to build the momentum they need to do their job. Awesome. Absolutely fantastic. So, Martin, if we look at taking that zeitgeist message and looking at archetypes, is there a way that we can use that information to identify what is relevant and current? Because I think often relevancy is missed in a lot of marketing and certainly a lot of sales activity. Yeah, I think there is. Let me give you a stat that just adds further proof to it because the stuff that Alex just mentioned is phenomenal, right? Phenomenal list of brands about and and his approach is fantastic about it. And just to add to that, we we've got a global fashion brand that we made sixty two million in revenue growth and savings. And a huge part about that was archetypes, right? So again, your archetypes, think about think about fashion, think about software, think about the example I give about HR, right? Your archetype has got nothing to do with style. It's got nothing to do with your product in itself. What your archetype and, and every brand will attract one type of dominant archetype without them even knowing it, because it's about how you communicate and how you show the detail or no detail, depending on the archetypes that you're serving. So therefore, a lot of brands are setting themselves up to fail because they haven't taken a moment to understand what type of archetype their product and services is bringing to the market. So there's a, there's a big opportunity with that. But again, it's, it's one of those things that to, to use a little bit of philosophy, the answers are within. If we don't ask ourselves how we're currently behaving as an individual and as an organization, then we're never going to know how we're projecting out to people. And then just to connect the dots of that, if we never ask the people that we're currently serving, to Paul's point, is that we never know how they feel about it. So we have to look inside and we have to look outside. And both of those things mean that we have to stop being so pretending to be so goddamn busy and so full of blame culture that we never get to those points because it's liberating. Understanding how your customers think is, is scary and it's liberating, but it's the scary part that holds people back from finding out. 
I'm minded of a quote from an old friend of mine. He there was one of the four original people who set Intel up, and he ended up going into venture capital. They got out of Intel far too quickly, I think. But uh, Jerry Lemberg described entrepreneurs as people who produce elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. And you often find that um, because you've got a great idea, and I've fallen into this trap dozens of times, I'm just going through process of working out the direction I want to take my business. And my coach is brilliant because he keeps giving me a good beating by telling me you're overcomplicating it. it, A great question is, if you could only have 50% of what you're offering, which 50% would you keep? And I think that's forcing me to take my assumptions out of it. It's forcing me to ask those simple questions. And Keith Cunningham, in his fabulous book, The Road Less Stupid, suggests that on a daily basis, you should take 45 minutes of silent contemplation with a notepad, a pen, and one question at the top of that notepad. No interruptions. And all you do is you write to that question. And Uh, Keep asking more and more difficult uh, questions in order to challenge your your assumptions. And take Marty's point, what is it we don't know? What is it we're not asking? And it's one of the things that I find infuriating for salespeople is that often they come unstuck because they just haven't looked for those gaps. So, Paul, we're coming to the top of the hour now, so let's wrap up with some conclusions What's the one takeaway from this conversation that you would suggest that people really focus their attention on? Look, I think that the big theme is that a focus on customer is essential to understanding how to redesign or design value into yourself. I think from my perspective, what I want to say to people is just don't over-theorize who your customers are or what they need. Don't let your businesses operate on assumption. Understand them. They're real people. Engage in a little bit of hand-to-hand and heart-to-heart. It really does phenomenal things, I think, for businesses. Couldn't agree more. Alex, same question. First of all, I've got to read a book that's called The Road Less Stupid. (laughs) It's brilliant. The other one I would urge you to read is Principles by Ray Dalio. Principles I've read, and it is absolute. And again, you know, it speaks to values and things like that. And he, yeah. he's a, he's the arbiter of everything that we've been talking about this morning. I mean, he's absolutely phenomenal. But you know, as a headline, I must find a way to use that as a headline in something that I do. The road less stupid. <laughs> I, that I set to myself. So I would say takeaway is very similar to Paul's. And what I would say to people is, why not try this? Have a few conversations, set yourself a target for a number of customer conversations where you personally have no agenda. There's no selling involved. You're not trying to get them to buy anything. Just spend that time trying to understand them as people, right? Just ask them good questions to find out what their life is like, what the context they're in, what they want, right? Because that will unveil in in 20, 30 minutes, you will find out more about how to sell to that person than you will in two, three, four hours of just trying to sell them stuff. This is really interesting, and it plays to another uh, theme that has been life-changing for me. One of my mentors, the author of Just Listen, Mark Goulston, says that all people, all human beings, want to be heard, 
be felt and be understood. And it's so rare that businesses make that their mission. It's to understand, to feel what the customers feel and to hear, genuinely hear what's being said and what they're being told. So Martin, your conclusion, what's your one takeaway from today that you'd recommend people implement? Ask questions and listen. Okay, that was succinct. (laughs) (laughs) No one could accuse you of being anything other than phlegmatic. I mean, Um, it's the the, the analysis. I'm just, I'm I'm making light of it specifically because of what it is, right? We don't ask questions. Even if we do, we don't listen. And that's the key thing. Say again? (laughs) <laughs> very good, very good. Um, oh, got you. yeah yeah you did actually and, um, the great thing about listening is that is that it goes in many different dimensions right so often humans are just listening for the type of affirmation for the answer that they were already looking for and that's not what listening is really about so the ability to understand our customers and let's define who the customers are because the customers are the people that pay you money and also the people that you pay the largest proportion of your business's income to, and that's your employees. Um, and the world still suffers under what I call bigger brain syndrome. This idea that there's a demonstrable intellect gap that's so huge that people at sea level have got so much more intellect than people that are actually making the difference for their business that they don't speak to them either. So your customers are both sides of it, right? That's what good culture comes from. I, th- I think that is just a fabulous takeaway. And uh, again, I would just edit what you said, which is ask great, insightful questions and listen for insight as well. Listen as a whole body experience. Do not just hear what you want to hear. Happy ears are the curse of most sales and marketing departments. So on that note, thank you, gentlemen. This has been an absolutely fabulous discussion. I look forward to our next one. And this is me, Marcus Kauke, thanking Paul Alexandru, Alex Moscou, and Martin Lucas, and signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you've got something to add to this debate, then please feel free to throw some questions my way at mcauchi at sandler.com. Until the next time, happy selling and be safe. Bye-bye.